Hello, and welcome to this brand new episode of Conversations at Jack Rabbit Slims. I'm Craig Cohen, and this week I am having a chat with somebody who I haven't spoken to on a podcast in quite a few years. It is screenwriter John Sullivan. John, welcome. Thanks a lot, Craig. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's great to have you. We spoke way back, it probably, um, I want to say 2013-ish for my first podcast, which was Camel Clutch Cinema, Yep. and we talked about a movie you wrote called Recoil, starring Stone Cold Steve Austin and Danny Trejo, which was just a, a phenomenal movie. And if you haven't seen it, pause this. We'll be here when you get back. Watch the movie <laughs> and then come back. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so uh, Recoil was a really, really great movie. And since then, you've had um, another movie that, that's come out. Yeah, uh, it's a movie called Security. It came out in 2017. It got a limited theatrical release through Millennium, who uh, did the Olympus Has Fallen movies, uh, the latest Rambo. Great action movie studio. Uh, I was really happy to work with them. And Antonio Banderas was the heroic lead in it. And Ben Kingsley, sir, Ben Kingsley was the baddie. So in terms of star power, it was definitely a step up, I guess, from from Steve Austin and Danny Trejo, who are awesome too. But in terms of getting uh, an Oscar-nominated actor, an Oscar-winning actor in a film, it was pretty crazy. And that was a fun movie. It's, it's essentially Die Hard in a shopping mall. I always compare it to, it's my hard rain. If I was Graham Yost, who wrote Speed, hard rain, this would be my hard rain. All right, all right, excellent. Yeah, that was um, that was the Christian Slater movie, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I remember that for years. I remember hearing that that was being developed as, I think it was called The Flood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 with John Woo originally supposed to direct that one. Yeah, wow, wow. So security, um, we'll, we'll have to take a look for that. And there's a, a little bit of a, a, a Quentin Tarantino connection there because, uh, as we know, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez are buddies. And um, oh, yeah. Antonio Banderas was put on the map for a lot of people here in the States for Desperado, which Robert Rodriguez made. And Tarantino has a great, great funny cameo in. So, John, we're, we're here to talk about Pulp Fiction and I was really interested in speaking to you because of, you know, your background as a screenwriter and, and yep. you know, your approach to the film based on that. So do you want to talk a little bit about your first experiences with the film? You know, it, did you see it when it came out in theaters in 94? Oh, I certainly did. Uh, those were the good old days where you can go to the movies and <laughs> see <Yeah>. films. <laughs> uh, I remember it well. Uh, 94, uh, I was about 15 years old when Pulp Fiction came out. And my friends and I were junior cinephiles, so we were aware of Tarantino. We knew who he was. We were very aware of Reservoir Dogs. Uh, I worked in a video store um, starting when I was a freshman in high school, and I worked in that video store through most of my formative years, from 93 to about 98, the fall of VHS in 98, 99. And Tarantino was definitely in our minds, so we were aware of Pulp Fiction. We had read about it in Entertainment Weekly, we knew that this was a film that had a lot of buzz and this was pre-internet. So buzz was something you had to find. It oh, was, yeah. if, if you had heard of a movie before it got out, before it was released, that meant that, that movie meant something. That was something that you had to be aware of, especially if you loved film. So we were really excited for Pulp Fiction. We didn't know what it was about. We knew the cast was amazing. We were all Bruce Willis fans and we were really curious about Travolta. We didn't know what he was going to bring to the table. He hadn't worked in a significant movie since, I don't know, maybe the Look Who's Talking movies, if you call those significant. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> I mean, they were hit movies, but, you know, no one was saying like, oh, the Look Who's Talking guy is in Pulp Fiction. I can't wait. 
Well, yeah, I mean, there's a point as an actor when you go down a road where sometimes you go down a road so far that you can't come back, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I knew he was a talented actor, but I hadn't seen him in enough things. I hadn't seen Blowout. I hadn't seen some of the more experimental things he had done. I hadn't seen Urban Cowboy. So my knowledge of Travolta was essentially not even Saturday Night Fever, but the airplane parody of Saturday Night Fever. (laughs) I hadn't seen Saturday Night Fever yet. So the cast, I, I had read about the cast coming together. I had heard that had a great showing at the award shows. It, it was winning things, and uh, we were excited for it to come out. And we saw it, I think, opening night. Um, I'm trying to remember the exact date it came out. Came out mid, like mid October. Yeah. So we were um, we were pretty stoked to see it, and again, had no idea what it was going in. I had started to write scripts, and it was a very early thing for me. Um, when I was probably when I was 12 or 13, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I thought I wanted to be a novelist. I thought I wanted to write books, but that wasn't really happening. But I was writing 45, 50 page novellas and they were meandering. They were going all over the place. And it was taking me half a year to try to write a book. And I didn't know what a screenwriter was. I loved film, but my knowledge of film when I was younger adolescent preteens maybe was the director did everything right i didn't realize that you could write movies i didn't know that until i started paying attention to credits and i saw written by like oh you could write movies so i bought a couple of screenwriting books when i was 14 and wrote some really bad screenplays (laughs) i didn't know what i wanted to do i liked action movies i liked horror films but i was sort of learning and it wasn't until about 94 that I started to hone structure and started to pay more attention to how a movie came together. And I started to realize what I wanted to do. And when I saw Pulp Fiction and, and, and the movie doesn't play by any rules. It's, it, it, it's a very, it's a deliberately disjointed narrative. I think it was described as a swirl. It, it's sort of the narrative is a swirl, right? That's, so that's it, a good way it, to describe it's it. It's obviously not a, uh, it doesn't come together, you know, linearly. So it, it was an interesting uh, indoctrination into into screenwriting because it's not what you're supposed to do. So watching this and watching Tarantino not play by any rules and, and seeing these three stories come together, it really was an eye-opener. And it showed me that I could do whatever I wanted to some degree on the page. And everybody, anyone who wanted to become a screenwriter when they were in their like teens, maybe early teens and, and late teens, Tarantino had a profound influence and that's why you saw a lot of imitators come out a couple of years later. You saw a lot of movies that tried to mimic the Tarantino structure and then the Tarantino attitude and the environment, the characters talking about nothing during a scene when something very significant was happening. Tarantino didn't start that, but he brought it into this indie film dynamic. And he actually got that from a lot of 70s directors who did that, who didn't knock you over the head with deliberate story beats. They took their time. They took their time with characters. They took their time with dialogue. They took their time with how a scene plays out. And Shane Black did that a lot with Lethal Weapon and Last Boy Scout and Long Kiss Goodnight. And I think Shane Black and Tarantino share a lot of sensibilities, uh, especially with the Pulp Fiction connection. Uh, Shane was very influenced by Pulp Fiction, as was Tarantino. The fact that he called his movie Pulp Fiction uh, says a lot. So when I saw Pulp Fiction, I started to write a bunch of Tarantino ripoffs for about two to three years. And they were all not good. 
but it was it was a nice exercise. It allowed me to sort of stretch my muscles as a screenwriter, to try new things, to play with character, to play with story structure. And ultimately, I don't write movies like Pulp Fiction. Movies like Security and Recoil, they're very linear action stories. But watching a Tarantino film, it taught you about dialogue. It taught you about caring about a character. It also taught you about subverting an audience's expectations. And that was incredibly helpful to me, more than any screenwriting book that I read. So, yeah, I mean, I, I credit Tarantino, even though he doesn't have an influence blatantly in, in things that I write, I credit him with teaching me what I can and can't do or what I'm capable of as a writer. Yeah, well put. And I like, you know, how you went back and illustrated sort of that, you know, Tarantino was sort of returning to something that had been lost at the end of the 70s where, you know, in the 70s, film was really sort of a director's medium. And then really in the 80s became more of a, a producer's medium, right? I mean, where, yeah. you know, directors oh, yeah. directors had clout and they had their name, but, you know, you had guys like Joel Silver that if you saw Joel Silver was producing a movie, you know, you knew what you were getting as opposed to, if, oh, yeah. you know, if you saw Richard Donner was directing it, I think yeah. more people were probably excited with Lethal Weapon when they saw Joel Silver was involved. So is there anything you know, you recall about seeing it in theaters for the first time? It felt like I was being led down a dark alleyway and I didn't know where I was going. And that's, that's what it felt like when the lights went down and the credits started, we knew what we were in for. We knew we were in for a violent movie. We knew we were in for a dark movie that would have elements of comedy to it, but we didn't know exactly when those elements would happen. Vincent getting, you know, shot coming out of the bathroom. It, it, I mean, we, we, we hadn't seen anything like that in a while. Yeah. Um, where the ostensible lead of the film gets killed midway through the movie. Of course, at that point, we weren't, we, I at least, and maybe my friends were a little bit more astute than I was. I didn't know that this was a nonlinear narrative. I didn't know that that was, that was the third, that was the third act that we were watching. Right, right. The second act was going to be the third act. In preparation for this, I was reading a uh, breakdown of the structure of the film. And it's like, it's like, it's 2A, 4B, 3C. And I couldn't keep track of it because I, I'm really bad at math. <laughs> yeah. But I was surprised at every turn. I, I mean, the moment everybody knows where the, the film takes a very strange turn with uh, Bruce and Ving in the basement of the pawn shop. Now, I don't think anyone else had been more surprised of a direction that a scene would take than uh, Zed's pawn shop. Yeah, absolutely. Because up to that point, the movie was violent and it, it was about sin and was about redemption. And all these themes were, were, were linked, but you don't know how dark it was going to go. And by the time that Bruce takes the, the katana blade and, and saves Ving, it's... It, you're like, okay, I'm in the hands of someone who not only respects the audience, but also wants to really jolt them out of their seats, really just wants them taken out of their, to their safety zone. Yeah. And at that point, it, and he was so good. The movie was so good at juggling genres. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's wraparound theme is pulp fiction, taking these pulp stories that we've all read in, in, in Raymond Chandler books and, and from the 40s and 50s, and then completely subverting them. 
but it was also about meshing genres. There's elements of action in there. I mean, the moment takes, Bruce takes a katana blade, you're all of a sudden you're in a Bruce Willis action film. Right. Except that he's not getting $5 million to be in the movie for five minutes. <laughs> Which that's what's in the suitcase. If anyone asks what's in the suitcase, it's it's the money that Bruce Willis now gets for direct to video films uh, that he has in for three minutes. That's that's probably the best theory I've heard so far. That's what it is, uh, Bruce. All you have to do is sit down in this one location for three minutes, um, and here's your briefcase full of money. Um, but in that scene, that scene in Zed's pawn shop, he takes a katana blade. It's an action movie. It's a samurai movie. Up to that point, it was a horror film. It was Deliverance. It was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Prior to that, it was a boxing noir. Uh, prior to that, it was a romance. Um, prior to that, it was a gangster pick. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you get to The Wolf, the third segment where they're trying to hide the body, it's a comedy. Right. It's a pure farce. The third act of that movie is a farce, despite the, the, the violence and Tarantino, you know, playing with the conventions of what a farce could be. But that's what it is. It's almost like a stage play. So he can meshed all these different genres, and all these different techniques together. And he gets some flack. I don't I don't I personally don't think that this is a bad thing, but he borrows so much from cinema that this movie is, it's about cinema. It's a movie about the movies. But it doesn't insist on itself that like, like a film like Scream does, which is a movie I really like too. But Scream blatantly says you're in a movie. Pulp Fiction implies it. It implies you're in a movie, but it never takes you out of the drama. It never takes you out of the comfort of being surrounded by these colorful characters. So when we walked out of Pulp Fiction, the movie is about two and a half hours long. My friends were all cigarette smokers. I wasn't. My friends were. And they were all jonesing by like the two-hour mark. So we get out of, we get out of Comac Multiplex in Long Island. And I'm like, how'd you guys like it? And they're all like jittery. And they're all like pop, pumping their cigarettes into their mouth. And they're like, that was amazing. But it was so long. So I think that's why a lot of people went to see it again and again in the theater. Uh, because it is exhausting. It's an exhausting movie. And it's Easy to say now that it's such a it's a breezy movie to sit through at home when you watch it on Blu-ray and when you watch it on, on streaming. But in the theater, it's an exhausting film because it takes you through so many emotions. It takes you through so many ups and downs right. and twists and turns that you get out and you have nothing left. So that was my experience. And I knew that I wanted to be a screenwriter, but I also knew that I could never do anything that good. So it was inspiring, but also really frustrating. I think we all I think we all know that feeling. And the funny thing about it, too, John, is, you know, you mentioned the running time. And I remember in 94 seeing the running time and being like, wow, you know, I'm going to be in the theater for, you know, almost two and a half hours. And and like nowadays, it seems like moviegoers, if, if the film isn't, you know, over two hours, it's not worth their time, which is a really sort of interesting, yeah. you know, change in dynamic. Yeah, you know, it's sad to think that and Tarantino would never allow this, but say it wasn't a Tarantino movie. Um, Pulp Fiction would probably go to Netflix now. And, you know, it, I, I think it, it that's that's a shame. But, it, I mean, it wouldn't happen because Tarantino would never allow it. But if it wasn't a Tarantino film, if it was a Tony Scott movie, it would have gone directly to Netflix. Right. So you mentioned sort of the variety of, of the movie and, and how different each sequence is, is there one sequence when you sit down to watch it that, you know, you sort of, you know, anticipate coming and say, Oh, I can't wait for this. 
I was unprepared for a lot of the movie. I didn't know where, where the uh, Vincent and Mia story was going. I thought it was going to be, obviously Vincent was going to hit on Mia and then Ving was going to call, and then it was going to be, you know, uh, Vincent, you know, gets crap beat out of him by that. That was because that's how I was wired. That's what I expected. And when it didn't become that, when it became resuscitating her from a heroin overdose and becomes a different movie. And when we get to Eric Stoltz house, it became, each scene became a different film. Um, and I think that that was intentional. Uh, in a way, it was like reading a book of short stories where this movie came from. So I, I was never prepared. Every time I thought it was going to zig, it zagged. Especially when I didn't realize that the movie was out of order. When you finally realize that, it's almost too late. Yeah. You don't know what's going to happen next. So I, I would like to say like, oh, I saw this coming. Or I, knew that, I knew he was going to do this. I didn't. And nowadays, I feel like we've lost that element of surprise. I'm not sure if that could be recaptured. I think that Tarantino inspired so many other writer-directors that they've done that since then. And, and we've seen other films like Two Days in the Valley and Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, which are great movies. I mean, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead was written by Scott Rosenberg, who's a fantastic screenwriter. Yeah. But they all felt like cousins of Pulp Fiction. And because we've seen Pulp Fiction we understood where the, these films were going. Sure, they were using a, a template that Tarantino has sort of created. Yeah, yeah. A, a template that he created, but also evolved from other, yeah. other movies. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the template that he created with Pulp Fiction, I think in, in wound up influencing people who influenced him. I mean, I'm not saying Shane Black influenced Tarantino, but Shane Black definitely, you know, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and the Nice Guys, they, they harken back to Pulp Fiction. Yeah. It almost seems like it was a, a key to unlocking some handcuffs. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because Shane was just writing straight action films. I mean, you, you could argue that Last Boy Scout has a lot of, of pulp noir in that movie. It's a little bit more than an action film, although the original draft of that script was closer to Pulp Fiction than what Joel Silver wound up releasing. Uh, that movie was heavily, heavily compromised by the studio. And it became sort of a rote action film, a movie that I love. I have a poster of Last Boy Scout right here in my office. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think, you know, Tarantino showed that you could do this. You can do, you can have uh, flawed characters. You can have a disjointed narrative. Um, you could have bursts of violence that come out of nowhere and you could still have a movie that audiences like. But it's a very tenuous line because it doesn't always work. Two Days in the Valley didn't work, at least not at the box office, neither did things to do in Denver when you're dead. And a lot of the movies that didn't have those budgets, they went direct to video. I know because I was, I was a video store clerk and I saw a lot of Tarantino knockoffs that went nowhere. Love in the 38 is, was one that came out and it just didn't work because it had the violence and it had the casual dialogue. It had the twists and turns, but it was lacking the originality. Um, everything felt like a copy of a copy. And that, that never, that never works. Yeah, and I, I think the other thing, John, that, that was really interesting is the audience that Pulp Fiction attracted. I don't think a wide audience was interested in seeing like a Things to Do in Denver when you're dead or Two Days yeah. in the Valley, whereas Pulp Fiction, like I remember like within, I think opening weekend, you know, my mom and my stepdad went and saw it, which, you know, I, I think, you know, it was, it was the broadness of the audience too that I think a lot of the knockoffs didn't really capture. Yeah, 
Tarantino became a star too. And it, it's, it's very rare that a writer is well known, especially with the younger audience, at least in high school, we knew who Tarantino was. Like people who weren't into films knew who Tarantino was. My parents know who Tarantino is, even if they've never seen his movies. He became a commodity, which is rare for, there's only a handful of writer directors who are a commodity. Nolan is a great example. That's, that's a gigantic example. Yeah. Um, and Tarantino is another one. Tarantino doesn't need Leo or Brad Pitt in the movie. I mean, it helps, but he'll, he has a dedicated audience who go see his films on opening day. And Nolan's the same way. Nolan doesn't necessarily need a star-studded cast. People go see a Nolan movie. Um, there's, and Shane Black is another one. He's, he's, he's on a lower level. He's more of a, a star amid screenwriters, among screenwriters. The movie has to work. And he's struggled a little bit with having a blockbuster film. But Tarantino became a star in his own right. And these other writer-directors, just they, they didn't have the same sort of distribution level. These movies may have been good, but they, they just didn't get the same sort of attention. And um, Thursday is another great example with, with Thomas Jane and, and Aaron Eckhart. That's a great movie. Uh, Skip Woods wrote and directed that, but it got no attention and because it was a smaller film. But they all are beholden to Tarantino. They're all beholden to Pulp Fiction. And Reservoir Dogs, too. That's a hugely influential movie, especially uh, amongst, um, uh, among uh, indie directors. Because you could shoot a Reservoir Dogs. You can make yeah. that movie in your apartment. You mm-hmm. can make that movie down the block here in L.A. Um, it's an easy movie to shoot. Tarantino knew that. But I don't know where those directors are coming from now. I, don't, I, I, you know, I think Netflix and some of the streamers have opened up the doors a little bit more. So we may see another Tarantino emerge. But... He was just such a force. He was such a force in the early 90s. And it's amazing that he still maintained all that weight to this day. I mean, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think it's his highest grossing film ever. Yeah, that was the, a big turnaround for me. I, I admittedly took a break in my enthusiasm for Tarantino for a couple of years. Um, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it was sort of like a, a revelation for me. And it it was one of the you know things that sort of prompted me to you know, get going with this Pulp Fiction podcast because it, it kind of made me fall in love with Tarantino again. And I think it's an amazing achievement. And I, I do want to key in on something you said, John, where you, you mentioned, you know, that Tarantino, everybody knows him. And do you think part of that appeal too was that, you know, David Letterman would be able to book Tarantino and know that he was going to get a great segment out of him? I mean, yeah. Tarantino even hosted SNL. Oh, yeah. He's, he's a personality which again is a, a, it's a, that's a rare commodity for a writer director for an artist who's not an actor to have a personality, to have this, this, this persona that everyone knows everyone does their Tarantino impersonation. Yeah. Everyone knows he's going to be a great guest. Everyone knows he's going to have an amazing soundbite. He loves movies and that comes through with him and that endears him to an audience you're watching a film by a guy who's not doing this for a studio paycheck. He's not doing this because he wants his name above the credits. He's doing this because he genuinely loves movies. And it, you can tell from his encyclopedic knowledge of not only movies, but music. I envy him because I, I, I like to think of myself as a cinephile, but I'm nowhere near the level he is in, in terms of his knowledge of film and the history of film and and. I can never direct a film, so he's already far above me. But 
I think his love for film comes through. And I think that's what endears him to an audience. You're watching a film by a guy who wants to entertain you because he was entertained by film growing up. And he found solace and he, and he found comfort in cinema, which I think if, if you love movies, I, th- I think we all find that right now, especially in, in this climate. There's a reason why the streamers are blowing up. People are turning to film and entertainment because there's nothing else right now. But it's such a warm blanket. And when you see Tarantino on these talk shows, when you see him being interviewed, you get the sense that this is something that means a lot to him. And Pulp Fiction is a great example of that because it's every single movie he's ever seen in this love letter to cinema and pulp and noir. He wants to show you his, his toy box. And, and it's also a great introduction to anyone who wants to, if you want to, if you want to see Django, if you want to see Once Upon a Time, if you want to see Inglorious Bastards, if you want to see Hateful Eight, watching Pulp Fiction prepares you for those movies. It's a great primer. That's a great point, John. We sort of talked about Bruce Willis a little bit and, and Travolta. Did you want to sort of talk about the performances in the movies and which ones really worked for you? Overall, it's a, it's just a, a stellar, stellar cast. And I've talked about the fact that some of that casting is, you know, so good that you couldn't see anybody else in the role. Oh, of course. I mean, it's impossible to, it's impossible to think any, that anyone else was ever considered. But if you go on IMDb, if you go on Wikipedia, the movie was originally, I guess it was a Sony. It was going to be a TriStar movie. And all the usual names were thrown around for, for the cast. But Tarantino, obviously, he stuck to his guns. And it wasn't about him, oh, I'm going to cast Travolta because this is funny. Um, I'm going to cast Travolta because it's a stunt. He remembered Travolta from Saturday Night Fever. He remembered Travolta from Blowout. He knew that Travolta could do he, he could do this. And not only that, but Travolta cost like 100 grand. Yeah. He was, it wasn't an expensive actor, at least not for a project of, of this size. And he, Travolta brought that coolness. He's a cool actor. Uh, he's made some questionable choices in the last couple of years, but he's a very cool actor. It's very effortless with him. And he brought that heroin, hazy, uh, laconic sort of leading man vibe, which which is something that you really, you saw a little bit in the 30s and 40s with some of these actors. Um, we were watching Mank, um, who, and then they, they, they have little bits and pieces of watching the, some of the films that were shot back then. But Travolta has that old-timey uh, studio contract quality to him that he brought to Pulp Fiction. It's almost a timeless sort of performance. I, don't, I can't imagine anyone else doing it. He's dangerous, but he's friendly. It's a guy who can dance, who can seduce you, but at the same time, he's in over his head with Mia. And that's, that's, that was a very interesting balance for him. And Uma just can just bring sexuality to any role. I was reading a uh, bonfire, not Bonfire of the Vanities, but about the, a book about the making of Bonfire of the Vanities. And everyone was so impressed when Uma, when she came in to read for the female part in Bonfire, she just seduced everybody in the room at her audition. And it, there's a reason why she's one of the biggest female actors in the business. She just has charisma to spare in any role. And I can't imagine anyone else as Mia. She was so great in that. And she brought the same sort of energy that Travolta did. Dangerous, but friendly. And you, you get this coiled sort of snake-like energy from her where you don't know where she's coming from. You don't know if she's seducing you. You don't know if this is like a honey trap for Vincent. Yeah. 
And it turns out she's just she just wants a night out with a normal guy <laughs> who yeah. unfortunately is a heroin addict. <laughs> Bruce was interesting. I was the biggest. I still am the biggest Bruce Willis fan, no matter what, what sort of movies he, he does. He's he's usually the best part of, of, of anything that he's in. But I, I saw Die Hard a couple of years prior. I was 15 when Pulp Fiction came out. So I saw Die Hard when I was probably 11 or 12. That's when I was allowed to see it. Thanks, mom and dad. Yeah. And I was, I was a huge, huge Bruce Willis fan. I, I watched anything he was in. I, I, you know, Mortal Thoughts. I, was, I read Mortal Thoughts because Bruce Willis was in it. Uh, in Country. I saw all the Bruce Willis deep cuts. And by the time that Pulp Fiction came around, I think he had done like Color of Night. He had done some things that hadn't worked, like Striking Distance. Yeah. I still was the biggest Bruce Willis fan. So he got me into the movie. I liked Travolta, but he was an unproven factor. I didn't know enough about Uma to go see a movie because she was in it, but Bruce brought me to that movie. And I think that was the case for a lot of people. And a lot of people went to see Pulp Fiction, especially overseas where he's a big draw. So that movie, he did get the movie exposure, but he was so good as Butch. I, I, I mean, it's almost like you expect Bruce Willis's name to actually be Butch because he looks like a Butch. Yeah. <laughs> He's just got that bald head bruiser sort of vibe to him. And he can play tough. He can play a jerk. And then all of a sudden he switches into hero mode. And it's such a screenwriting, it's such a screenwriting thing that happens in that pawn shop scene, that refusal of the call. It, does Bruce go back for Ving? Does he go back for Marcellus or does he leave? And that is such a screenwriting thing. You have to give your hero a choice. And it's a difficult choice. If he saves Marcellus, is he still going to be on Marcellus' hit list? If he doesn't save him, is he going to have this horrible thing on his conscience? So Bruce pulls it off perfectly. He doesn't emote like other actors. His face is already, it already has so much character to it. So I thought he was great in it. And Sam Jackson, I mean, Again, just like Bruce, he's usually the best thing about anything that he's in. Same thing, dangerous but cool. But he commands the screen. You are scared of him. When he's talking to, um, I think the uh, name of the kid is Brett, when he's yeah. giving the famous speech, you're, you're shaking. You're shaking in the theater. You're, it feels like you're being yelled at by your very angry father. Yeah. Well, there's that one that, there's that one moment in that scene, John, where he asks if he can uh, have a, a sip of his drink and we get this shot. Yeah. It's probably too long by most most filmmaker standards, but you know, where he's taking the last sip of that drink and you just see his eyes staring at uh and yeah, you you're you're totally that's you're the only two people in the room at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And that and that made Sam Jackson. He had done uh, he had couple, done a couple things for him. He was in Jurassic Park. He was a great character actor. This this just made him. You, you wanted him in everything. And I think Sam, you know, he got a negotiator after that. He started doing bigger films. Obviously, now he's the godfather of, of the Avengers. But that movie, it, it gave him, I consider him almost the lead of the film. He's the moral center of Pulp Fiction. He's, he's the soul of the audience in a way. And you're rooting for him. You know, he, he's not in any action sequences. He's, he's, he's certainly, you know, not, not at the level where, where you know, Bruce goes into the pawn shop. He can, Sam kills a bunch of people, but he's the hero of the piece. And it's his soul. He's the guy that survives this world. And maybe he goes on to walk the earth. Right. Um, like Kane and Kung Fu. Maybe you hope he does. And he's the one character that you really do want to see emerge from this. You don't know what's going to happen to, to Bush and Fabian. I mean, I, I still think that he's in danger. But 
Sam's the soul of the movie. And I think it was really, really important to nail that casting. And Tarantino knew. I mean, I'm sure Tarantino was aware of Sam Jackson long before Pulp Fiction. Um, I'm, sh- I'm sure, you know, he would put him in Reservoir Dogs if there was a role for him. Tarantino was, was a big fan of these actors who were just kind of under the radar. And he never revitalized their careers. I think that's not correct. I know a lot of people say, oh, it brought, it brought him back. These actors were very successful in a certain pocket. And he brought them out and underlined them and highlighted them and say, this guy deserves this level of fame or this level of respect. So, you know, Sam was going to always going to have a great career no matter what, no matter if Pulp Fiction didn't happen or not, he was going to be noticed. But Tarantino put the spotlight on him and said, this guy brings something to the table. And the same thing with, with, with Travolta and Uma Thurman. Bruce was already there, but he also showed that a megastar like Bruce Willis can be humble and also give one of the best performances of his career. And after that, you saw a lot of A-list actors doing independent films. Right. Bruce was like one of the first guys to do that. Yeah, that's, um, that's a great point as well, John. So as we sort of wrap things up, is there any you know, kind of final thought you have on, on Pulp Fiction in 2020? I'd like to see another writer-director attempt something as risky as Pulp Fiction. Uh, and I haven't seen that yet. I haven't seen a movie on that level since, since 94. I haven't seen a Pulp Fiction since 94. And I don't want an imitator, but I want a movie that changes the game like Pulp Fiction did. A movie that inspires other writers, inspires other directors, inspires other 15-year-olds to you know, put pen to paper and, and, chase, and chase that dream. I, I always say that three movies that made me a screenwriter are Speed, <laughs> Die Hard, and Pulp Fiction. Those three movies informed pretty much everything I do. I'm 42 years old right now, and those three movies I still point to as formative films for me. So it's 2020. I really like, I'd, I'd like to find the next Pulp Fiction. I'd like to see who the next Tarantino is. And it may be still Tarantino. I still think he ups his game with every movie. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is one of my favorite movies ever. And he's still going strong. So I, I'd like to see another Pulp Fiction, but I feel like Pulp Fiction will be unrivaled for a while. Yeah, it's hard for me to, to not agree with you. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've devoted a whole podcast to Pulp Fiction. So, so John, this was really, really fun. And I'm, I, I thank you for taking the time out to talk about this movie. Thank you, Craig. Thank you. I will include a link to security so people can check that out. And um, best best place for people to see you is on, on Twitter. I know I have a lot of fun following your, your Twitter feed. Yeah, I always say that uh, my, my Twitter feed is, is like the Seinfeld of Twitter feeds. It's about nothing. Um, sometimes it's about screenwriting. Sometimes it's about 90s movies. Um, sometimes it's about my time as a video store clerk. Sometimes it's literally about nothing. So that's the best place to find me, but I'll also answer any screenwriting questions people have. Um, you know, I'm not at the level of Tarantino or Shane Black, but I've written a couple of movies and uh, I'm always willing to give advice to people. Excellent. Excellent. John, thank you again. And hopefully we, uh, it's not as long before we talk again for a podcast. Oh yeah. And I, please, please uh, hit me up anytime. I'm, I, I love talking to you and it's been a blast. All right. Excellent. Thanks, John. Thank you, Greg. 